Hey people, welcome back to series three of Not Another Sales Podcast. My name is Chris Atfield. I'm the founder and coach of Sales Psyche, a company focused on supporting and developing sales and commercial teams, mental health, well-being, and performance. This podcast aims to look at the world of sales through a different lens, providing not just the tactics, but also the mindset of what makes it successful. This series, I'm asking guests, what's one thing they suggest you try, avoid, and keep doing to be successful? whether that's as a rep, leader, or organization. So let's get started. On today's episode, I'm joined by Justin Welsh, limited partner at GTM Fund and founder of JW Strategic Advisory. Justin has helped build two 50 million ARR companies, teams of 150 people plus, and raise over $300 million in venture capital. And we're gonna be exploring a few things today with Justin. First of all, the story behind what led him down this path, all starting with a panic attack the future of productivity and how companies can adapt to it, what it means to own your excellence and mastery around your role, and the inspiration and process behind his content creation. So sit back and enjoy. Justin, welcome. How are we doing? Chris, doing well, man. Thanks so much for uh, for having me. It's great to meet you. Oh, the, the pleasure is all mine, likewise. Uh, really looking forward to getting into this this topic and, and this podcast, but before we do, um, for the very few people that are probably tuning into this that don't know who you are, it'd be great to give them some context and your your origin story almost before we before we kick things off. Yeah, um, so I have been in sales for the last sixteen years. Um, started off the first sort of six years of my sales career as what you might call a meandering salesperson. Um, got fired a bunch of times in my first three jobs. Uh, by the time I was 29, I had never really been successful. I had uh, never really made a sale, hit a quota. You know, I was just sort of meandering through small towns in the U.S. And I got an opportunity in 2009 to work for a really small startup at the time called ZocDoc. I was hired as the 10th person in the second sales hire there in New York. And, um, you know, everything kind of changed overnight. I went to this big city that I had never been to as an adult for the first time by myself uh, had this awesome product, these really cool people that were super smart. And I was just sort of maturing at the same time. And those four things kind of came together and I found my calling in, in that company. And over the next five years, I worked there in various leadership roles. And in 2015, I got hired as the VP of sales for a small startup called Patient Pop. And I spent four and a half years growing that business from its very first dollar in revenue up to a little more than 50 million in recurring. And uh, in August of 2019, I stepped down and built my own advisory firm, and I've been working for myself for the last 18 months. Great, great, yeah. Familiar with Patient Pop, I had uh, KD on the podcast last year. That's um, great. So yeah, he is, he is. Um, so yeah, when I was when I was thinking about uh, because I see so much great content that you share on LinkedIn, and I'm always mindful, of course, you know, come on podcasts and and maybe talk about something you may have talked to death for the the last day or week, and. I was thinking, what what can I talk about? And I stumbled across a tweet I think you put out about three or four days ago, um, or a few days, more days now, around a panic attack that you had mm-hmm. when you were 36. And, you know, I think a big focus around this podcast is looking at the kind of mindset and the mental well-being side of thing of sales. And I, I'm really um, fascinated to find out, like, if you take me back to them, what were some of the things leading up to that and and perhaps like what was the old justin like before that and and what changed really from it well yeah yeah i think you know what happened is i i got this executive role as the vp of sales at patient pop and i was what you might call 
a traditional stretch hire. The, the person who's supposed to get you to a million or three million or five million or in, in, you know, they hire someone with 20 years experience and, you know, off you go. And it worked out really well. And I, the company kept growing and I kept growing in my role and learning new things, but I am a control freak and I have a lot of perfectionistic tendencies. And so as the company grew and as my team grew, <clears throat> my sort of addiction to control grew. And so trying to keep everything together in a really fast growing startup and stuff starts to break. And if you try and keep everything together as one person, um, you start to have a lot of anxiety. And so I had a lot of anxiety. So I started to do very typical things that people might do when they're feeling anxiety and stressed, right? Ate a lot, drank a lot, um, didn't sleep very much. I was trying to do too much. And in late 2018, uh, I, I woke up one morning after probably eating and drinking too much the previous night before. And, um, I, my hands were real numb and, um, you know, I, I didn't really know what was going on. To be honest, I was confused more than anything. My, my mind was very confused. I, I, I felt in a state of, I was pretty delirious and that kind of turned into, um, terror to be honest. It was really a really bad panic attack. Um, and it lasted about three hours and the 911 EMS and, and all that came and, you know, told me I wasn't dying, which was great. And I think that helped center me a little bit, but that experience really shined a light on the fact that I wasn't treating myself very well. And so since then, and it wasn't a perfect transition, you know, I've made better choices, I'm trying to be healthier, more downtime more walks with my wife, less drinking, less eating, all the sort of traditional, you know, choices that someone makes once they realize they're, they're a bit in over their head. And that was the catalyst for leaving my job. Mm. What from that, that moment, what do you think, um, you were like two or three things that you really learn and have been more conscious of to this day to avoid it getting to that point? Yeah, I think the number one takeaway that I have is that time is like this extremely precious currency. I know it sounds funny to say it now, you know, three years later, but at the moment that it was happening, I thought that I was dying. And so, um, you know, I felt really, really bad about that, obviously, and uh, really scared about that. And so I came out of that with a better understanding for, for time being our ultimate currency. That was number one. Um, Number two, you do have that sort of epiphany that, you know, I was 36, which is certainly not old uh, by any stretch of the imagination, but I wasn't 28, you know, 25. I couldn't treat my body and make choices uh, the same way that I used to be able to make. And I don't know, as you get older, you don't really notice it happening. It kind of happens slowly. And suddenly you're like, hey, I can't, I can't treat myself that way anymore. And so that was, that was something that I took away from that. And then Last but not least, it was, if time was the ultimate currency, how do I want to spend it? And so I made a decision that was the, again, the, the, the catalyst for making the decision that I wanted to work for myself and I wanted to spend more time with my family and I wanted to do what I wanted, when I wanted and with whom I wanted. And so that life became the goal for me to set up. Mm. Yeah. And with, um, with that kind of like 
mindset shift there. It's interesting you talk about um, getting to the point of a panic attack because I think in sales it's so easy, isn't it, to run off adrenaline, run off this kind of pure excitement and, you know, burnout, for example, one of the the big lead-ups to burnout could be excess drive and ambition. Um, and people think, oh, that's crazy, like to think, well, you, you can't be too ambitious. Well, I use the analogy, it's a bit like when you go for a run or you, you finish a workout, you feel amazing, you feel like on top of the world. But if you tried to do that thing all over again, your body would fail on you at some point. Um, and it's very much like in sales, like you've had a good week, a good month, a good quarter, is it's very easy to to ride that wave of adrenaline and not actually build the right kind of habits and structures around there to to create as you talk about quite a lot around this kind of intentional living of doing things on purpose rather than accidents. Yeah, I think, I think it's interesting. <clears throat> I think that people think that burnout comes from overwork. And I think that there is a, a slice of that. I think that only makes sense. Um, but for me, it was less about the work and more about the control. It was more about the idea that um, things were slipping out of my control. Um, you know, there's only so much work you can do. And so I did as much as I could do. But the idea that I was losing control of what was going on around me um, had more of a mental impact than maybe a physical impact. And that drove behaviors that eventually had a physical impact. And so um, to me, it all starts with control, especially if you're like I am, and uh, you know, a control freak. And so uh, that was a real key learning for me is you know, to control less and delegate, give up a little bit more. Mm. Do you feel like that's part of the reason why you then wanted to work for yourself to kind of, you know, that innate control, like knowing you are responsible for your output directly more than within a bigger organization where there's more variables? Yeah. Yeah, it's a great question. <clears throat> I think that I was a really good individual contributing salesperson once I found my footing in 2009. I was very good at that. And I liked that because it was me. Like I went out and controlled my own attainment. And as I grew in my career, um, I was ambitious and had drive. So I wanted to grow into roles where I, I was de dependent on other people. But I think over time, I missed some of that sort of ownership, complete ownership without um, depending on other folks. And so I'm getting that in my solopreneurship. And that's not to say that someday in the future, the right company at the exact right time with the exact right product and people come knocking on my door and I think, oh, this is a great opportunity. But for where I'm at in my life today, um, solopreneurship, entrepreneurship, however you want to define it, is the right choice for my personal well-being, maybe not someone else's. Yeah. So I want to flip it to, to another part. Um, and I've been asking this question a lot recently, and it's, I find it quite fascinating because at this time of the year, obviously what's happened last year was crazy. Um, but it, I think it forces to evolve in a lot of different ways. But I'm going to give you a question with three different um things to focus on i just want you to to pick one from each and we'll start wherever you like but sure. if i was a um sales leader or sales rep listening to this what's one thing you'd encourage people to try keep doing and throw away this year so what are you drawn to try keep doing or throw away yeah i would say i would i would start with the try um, and 
I just had this conversation with someone yesterday, a former colleague who was looking to advance her career. And the thing that I might try is start to think about problem solving. We, we get really engrossed in our roles. I'm an SDR. I'm an account executive. I'm a sales manager. Um, those titles come with responsibilities. But what I think about is how can I solve problems for my business or my company with autonomy, without, without it being in my role description, without it being a bullet point in you know, my commission plan. And what I've seen over the course of my career is that when people take initiative and they solve problems that the company can't solve or is struggling with, and they do it without asking, they do it without permission, um, people look at that and say, what else can that guy or gal solve? Where else can we place that person in the organization to figure out a challenge? And so if you're not solving challenges, whether it's in your role or, or adjacent to your role, I would start to think about how you can do that. That is a, a piece of advice that someone gave me when I was struggling in my career that helped me sort of turn my career around. Mm, yeah, I love that. I think it's like you say, it's not going linear with your, with your role and, and just thinking, you know, outside of, of what you do. I mean, I've always, I've always felt like I want to do that because I think so many people, you know, if you're looking to progress and advance, I think a lot of people are sort of just waiting for something to happen or waiting to kind of, you know, follow the, the natural order of things or just think this is how it's always been done. So this is how we should keep on doing it. And to your point earlier about problems they can't solve, it might be problems they don't even realize they have sometimes. And I think that's why it's so good to be able to bring individuals in who are empowered to 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 bring up those kind of things and have those conversations um there's a great story i don't know if you're familiar with um, like the england rugby team clive woodwards mm -mm. um there was a guy jason robinson who's like a really small guy he'd come from rugby league to rugby union and he was in the um he was in the team and he came in for one of the games and he was like this rugby shirt they just keep grabbing my shirt they can't they can't really catch me they're just grabbing my shirt and he was like why don't we just do tight skin shirts then? So we went over to the marketing department and said, why don't we do this? And I said, well, Nike approached us a couple of years ago with about Kathy Freeman's suit. And we said, would you imagine a rugby fan wearing this kind of suit? Um, and he was like, this is crazy. Why are we not doing this? Just because of the kind of commercial aspect. So he changed it all around. And that's where, of course, all the kind of, you know, the England rugby team and now pretty much every rugby team have that. And his <laughs> kind of ethos was, I'll never criticize you for sharing an idea, but I will come down on you if you don't share something that you feel could actually benefit us. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I wrote about something similar to that this morning. I wrote an article about this idea that people people give give value to their knowledge based on some sort of idea of who a teacher or expert is and they look at someone else who is more experienced or more popular for lack of a better description online or, or thought leader or something like that. And they say, Oh, I don't know as much as that person. So I don't have anything valuable to share. And my, the article I wrote today was everyone has something valuable to share. Like everyone has a unique or interesting perspective about something. And oftentimes you'd be shocked when you share something, an idea, a piece of knowledge and get a really overwhelmingly positive response. So I always encourage people to be open with their ideas, to be candid, to, to speak up. That was a value at, you know, ZocDoc when I started working there, speak up. And they taught us all that we were all important. 
And I always took that from job to job. Mm. Yeah, I think I read the, that newsletter one actually, um, and it made me think I've always sort of believed you should always be a mentor and always have a mentor. So, you know, always help someone else because it helps build that self-belief and tackle some of these things that we can struggle with, that kind of confidence, that imposter syndrome that sometimes festers in there. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, absolutely. So we've done the, the something to try, something to throw away or something to keep. Where are we going next? Yeah, I would say it's hard to throw these away if you're a salesperson, but <clears throat> I might throw away wasting time. And I know that sounds like, oh, of course, why would we want to waste time? But did you know that in the average eight-hour workday, the typical person works two hours and 53 minutes? That's that's crazy. And so um, in in the... In the idea of designing a more intentional life, of living a better life, um, I would advocate for removing things that don't add value that you spend your time doing at your company, right? So um, meetings that aren't important, I would, I would push to eliminate. I know that's difficult as an individual contributing salesperson, but as a manager, as a director, as a VP, those are things that I would push to eliminate. We spend so much of our time in meetings that could be emails. It's such a waste of time. To me, give me sprints. Give me three 60-minute sprints of intense work with 30-minute breaks in between. I'm talking about a four and a half hour workday and people still delivering the same amount of quality as they do across those two hours and 53 minutes without taking them away from their family, without taking them away from their friends, without putting them in a car or a train when it's, you know, post COVID wasting their time on a commute. I think by giving people their time back, I think that we can get more productivity inside of those three, that three hour window than companies are generally getting today. And I think that's a change that we're going to see in the future. Mm, yeah. I love that. I think um, I can't quite remember the term around it, but when you give something a certain amount of time, you'll look to kind of fill it. Whereas if you actually give yourself a short amount of time to do something, you can actually complete it in that time. Parkinson's law. That's the one. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Thanks for that. Sure. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I, I really, it really resonates with me that because I think like you say, particularly with meetings, I think it's one of those things, isn't it? Where it's just like, You'd think, oh, we're now working from home, but everyone then just starts cramming Zoom meetings in, which of course can really cause a headache. And I had uh, Dan Wardle on from uh, Vidyard and he was talking about asynchronous videos. So like sending a video ahead of meetings and sometimes it actually cancels out the need for meetings, but not being afraid to just ask, do I need to be there? I know it takes you know a lot to sometimes ask that um, and it, it can be asked in the right way, but like getting someone to almost justify why you need to be in that meeting. And if they can't, then... I feel like, you know, it's a reason to actually go, do you know what, I'm going to spend my time doing this. Or if someone is asking you to go in a meeting, tell them what you're sacrificing as a result. And then they can decide as a manager or as your VP of where you should best spend your time. Yeah. And you talk a lot, you know, I, I've worked for innovative tech companies for most of my life. And they talk a lot about innovation. And you'll say, what if we canceled these meetings? Well, we can't do that. Why not? Because eight-hour workdays with lots of pointless meetings is how it's always been done. They're so innovative on the product side and so innovative everywhere else. But the minute you challenge the way that they've been doing things since 1860, when the eight-hour workday was created, then suddenly it's like, wait a minute, we can't, we can't do that. 
Why not? Well, we've never tried. Okay, why not try it? Like, if everyone's so innovative, why not try to innovate your culture or the way that you build your business or how you treat your employees? I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, maybe you try it's a terrible idea, but what's the harm in trying? Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree with people who will externally focus a lot on, like you say, innovation or, or what they sell and try and embody it. But internally, it doesn't actually represent like what they're doing externally. Um, and it can kind of get very muddled and confusing if you work there, then there's thinking, well, we're trying to represent and do things like this externally, but why is my job becoming more difficult internally as a result of it? Why can't we do the same kind of thing? So, yeah. So what about the thing to keep then? What's something that you think, either from a personal perspective or what you've seen um, from, from our collective sales community? Yeah. I think one thing, one thing that I would keep is something that a few people do really well, other people struggle with, is this concept of mastery. And, and I'll give you an example. Most salespeople, not most, some salespeople go into their role and the very first question they have is, how do I get to the next role, right? How, I'm an SDR, how do I become an AE? I'm an AE, how do I become a manager? Manager, director, director, VP, VP, CRO. And I can appreciate the ambition to move through the ranks, but I can promise you that by failing to master your current role, it becomes infinitely harder to do the next one. And so I'm noticing this trend amongst top performers, especially at the businesses that I was in, where they really stayed in their role. Sometimes it was two years, right? Not, I'm not talking 10 years, but sometimes two, two and a half, and they really mastered their role. Like they hit quota every month for 30 consecutive months, right? It became easy. And then they started thinking about the next role. And when they got to the next role, they had so much context around mastery of the previous one that they were able to perform in a better fashion in the next role. And so I guess what I'm trying to say is don't be so focused on the advancement. And this may go against what everyone else, else says, but be focused on being excellent at what you do all the time. And when you're really excellent at something, then consider moving into the next role and be objectively excellent, like quantifiably and in, in, in qualitatively excellent at your role. And um, I'd like to see more people continue to do that. Mm. Yeah, it builds up a real sense of empathy as well, of understanding of going through the tough patches. Because if, you, if you're constantly just trying to breeze through, um, you may not experience certain situations. So it's harder then to relate to it when, of course, you're running a team that might be going through that piece. Totally. I'll, I'll give you a very quick example. In, I don't love when SDRs or AEs move into a management role straight out of their individual contributor role. I was an SDR, I became an SDR manager. I've done it, by the way. And so I'm, I'm um, you know, it's something that I've done. But I love for them to go do the AE role as well, learn about closing the business. And then when they, when they become a manager, SDR managers and AE managers got to work together. And you have to have respect in context for that role. It goes both ways, AEs and SDRs, right? I'm not, I'm not picking on SDRs here. It goes for AEs as well. Understanding what it's like to be an SDR for an AE and understanding what it's like to be an AE for an SDR. When you move into a management role, having that context, being able to work with your peer to, to be successful is so critical. And so 
I love people understanding the context of other folks' role because it helps them be really, really top performers, at least in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. I think with that as well, a lot of the time when people are like having this expectation upon themselves and thinking, I want to go into this role is, is spending a bit of time and questioning where's it coming from. And, and even as a manager or a leader, when someone comes to you and says, I want to move into this role is not just either saying, yes, here's what you need to do or no, we don't have space for that is actually help giving them coaching them around like what's the reason behind it because i think sometimes it can come from other people's opinions what you see your friends doing if you're meeting up at the pub and you see everyone else has got a team lead role so now all of a sudden you've got it in your head that you want one when in reality you get there and you're like it's not what i wanted well most things aren't that interesting when you get them like i always thought that my world would be completed when i became an executive at a company at a startup company and and um sure it was cool i enjoyed it like i it was when i got it i was proud and excited and my family was proud and excited and but the sheen the shine of that new role and title and even the comp right it, it all wears off once you're mm. deep in the role and so it's kind of like buying stuff right we all think our lives would just be complete if we just had the new computer or car or ipad or whatever right shoes watch and then we get it and we're like, this is great. And then six days later, you're like, eh, cool. Like I thought that way about this iPad. I was like, oh man, when I get that iPad, everything's going to change. And then it's like, yeah, I got an iPad now. And so I think it's actually not that dissimilar when we move through our, our career. It, it wears off pretty quickly and the real responsibility becomes very, <laughs> very front and center. Yeah. And a lot of that comes from also how our system one and system two are wide. Like one looking for familiarity and one looking for variety is like constantly when we're looking for variety you might have heard of the, the maya principle uh, by a man named raymond lowry he talks about most advanced yet acceptable is that we're always looking for something advanced but if it's too far out of our reach we'll reject it because it's not familiar enough um and hmm. i feel like all these things we're looking for we get them and then they become familiar and then we're like oh it's just it doesn't feel that kind of variety anymore so therefore we go looking for something else yeah, that's the definition of the hamster wheel. Yeah, 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 definitely. So, um, um, before we wrap up, Justin, I I put some I put a little um, message out on LinkedIn earlier and got some questions back. And one of the question one of the questions I got asked numerous times was, "What do you think are like one of the top two one or two mistakes that people can make on LinkedIn, um, when it comes to creating this brand and this uh, creating content?" I think the number one thing is trying to be someone else. So for example, I have a, what I think is a generally unique style when I write and say things. And I know a lot of people like some of the things that I write and they, they might write in a very similar fashion. That's awesome. By the way, I, I don't ever um, talk poorly about someone trying their hardest. I think that's a really terrible thing to do. Um, but find your unique voice, like find uniquely who you are, find your authentic style and write as though you are write how you speak, write how you talk. Anyone should be able to read something that you've written and say, Oh, that's Chris. Oh, that's Justin. Um, when you do that, your voice comes through. And what I see is a lot of people being really engagement baiting. Like I read the beginning of what they're putting out there. And I'm like, I, this person's desperate for likes, comments, engagement. And like, that's, I can appreciate that, 
but just get on base every day being your authentic self and watch that compound over time. I think that is, um, I think that's number one. I think number two is remember how many people there are in the world and focus what you talk about and write about and create about on the, the one one thousandth percentage of people in the world who are excited about that particular topic, right? I don't know how many people there are in the world. I'm sure I could think about it if Google it, but there's a lot. And if you can nail one one hundredth of one percent of people with a particular topic, you have a huge TAM. You have a huge target addressable market, right? And so focus on a niche and be yourself, be consistent, get on base every day. Those are like the three biggest, I think, pieces of advice I might be able to give people. Mm. Yeah, that one you mentioned there really resonates with this. You talk about, we talked about a lot around intention in here. And I think it's always about whenever I try and put content out, what's the intention? Is it to try and make someone else leave them in a better place? Or is it trying to make myself feel in a better place? Um, and I think too many people sometimes write content trying to make themselves look good and the, and the reader's not getting anything out of it. Whereas I think if you can always think, how can I leave them in a better place of what they know, think or feel then in, a, in an authentic way, um, which isn't something that's just a, you know, clickbait story of here's a line, five lines later, it's nothing to do with the headline kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like my secret sauce is that I care about people and I give every piece of knowledge that I possibly learned on for free right? If you buy one of my courses online that I sell, it is aggregated free knowledge. You're paying for the time, right? That's I'm, I'm, I'm here to say that like you'll watch the course at 60 minutes. You're paying for the time that it took me to go take all the stuff that I've already shared somewhere in the universe for free and put it all together. <laughs> that's, that's yeah. why it costs money. Um, and I think that people's time is valuable. So I aggregate that and put it into something. But generally, I give everything that I know away for free. And mm. when you do that, um, I don't know. I think good things happen. Yeah. I think it's also just realizing, I think a lot of people place too much emphasis on the content and, uh, and an underemphasis on the person. Because um, there's so much strategy and content out there, isn't there? If it, like, you wouldn't need a personal trainer, really, if it was all about strategy and content. You wouldn't need coaches but it's not it's about the obviously the the uh like intention and actually acting on this knowledge and and content that's the thing that's missing a lot of the time yeah and, and i think that people forget about like i don't know being human is really important um like i shared that i had a panic attack right i think 90 percent of people may not share that or say that makes me look weak in my opinion I'm sure that there are lots of people in my audience that have struggled with anxiety, struggled with panic attacks, felt, you know, um, hopeless. Like I, I'm assuming that that will be relatable to a, and, and I don't choose to write it cause I think it's relatable. I choose to write it because it happened to me. And if it happens to be relatable to a large number of people, then great. People can learn from it. Um, but don't be afraid to like show failure. Everyone is so chest thumpy in some way, shape or form. And I just like, I don't know, just be yourself and, and share your, your ups and your downs. And I think you have a better chance of, you know, better, better content. Yeah. I feel like people are wanting more and more of that now. Um, you know, I think it's got better. I think we've still got a long way to go online of, of people doing that rather than just saying, here's where I was struggling. This is always going wrong. And then this happened and it's kind of like, well, where's the process in between and, and where was the kind of like, you know, there's no straight line success. Where's the kind of wiggles 
um, around that that's what we want to know because that's where the real lessons are. Totally. So the other, um, the other question I got uh, from a couple of people was where do you find your inspiration and, and motivation from? Yeah, I think what's most like most of my inspiration comes from discovering new ways to do things. So I like to tinker with content and growth and marketing and, you know, course sales and coaching. And I, I tinker with all these different things, trying to figure out, um, you know, how to build a business, how to build an audience, how to continue growing, how to add more value. And I think the thing that I drives me is like figuring new stuff out, right? Like I figured out a new, I don't know if you saw it. I sent a newsletter out the other day where I figured out how to grow my email list and my Twitter following mm. at the same time through like this momentum. And I thought that was interesting. So that gave me, it got me excited to share it. And so I, I shared it with people. Um, I have a lot of strong opinions that I've formed over 16 years of working in technology. And so I make a list of those. I have a, a list, a matrix of thoughts that I have. And I have a matrix of structures that I like to write in. And if I'm feeling uninspired, I, I glance at that and try and match some things up. You know, what's a cool style with a cool, you know, thought that I have and, you know, try and say something new and interesting. You know, there are times when I don't have anything interesting to say. And so when that happens, I just look around me and say like, what, what happened today? What did I learn? What went poorly? What went well? What's something a buddy of mine told me about in their world that was going well or going poorly and how can I turn that into a lesson that people will take value from. So I have a sketch pad. I use my phone to screenshot things. I have my content matrix, you know, for the most part, it's relatively well systematized. And that just comes from many years of building systems and processes at sales organizations. Mm, yeah. Great. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you so much for coming on. It's been a, a real pleasure hearing, um, hearing your insights and your stories as well. Chris, great to be on, man. Thanks, uh, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it, and thanks for the really uh, great questions. You're welcome. For for people who are tuning in, and it might be the first time they listen to you, and I'm sure it won't be the last. Um, where's the best place to go to, you know, check out the newsletter you talked about, Twitter, and, and all the other things going on in your world? Sure. The easiest way to follow me is uh, my website, which is justinwelsh.me. My last name is W E L S H, so justinwelsh.me. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Justin Sass. That's Justin S-A-A-S. Uh, or you can shoot me an email, which is just hello at justinwelsh.me. Perfect. Well, thank you again, Justin. And for the listeners, thanks for tuning in to another episode. I will catch you again very soon. Hey, people. Thanks for tuning in. If you want more of this content, then head over to our website, salespsyche.co.uk. Psyche is P-S-Y-C-H-E. And sign up for our self-talk newsletter. Plus, we also run another podcast, Master Brilliance and Resilience. And you can also find me on LinkedIn. Always happy to chat. But for now, stay mindful. Catch you soon.